those great lyrics uh, have that. Amen. Praise God. It says, uh, or it says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in heart, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I like that. Not in heart, but in whole. Wow, that's a big child. You look much more relaxed now. And I noticed Tom when he was sitting in the same pew with me. Towers. It is good to remind ourselves, right, when we're struggling with our sin, that we are struggling with a bit or a part of it. But to remember that the whole has been forgiven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it makes a huge difference, right? Amen. amen. Struggle. We're struggling against something that's been forgiven and something that's been dealt with. Uh, so we don't have to be slaves to fear, to guilt, to shame, uh, to regret. Uh, that those things can be confessed uh, and removed. Uh, and it is a uh, powerful uh, thing to know. So let's continue to look. Go to Romans 12 uh, as we continue to look at how we shall overcome. Uh, really what we're looking at is, uh, I guess if you could say, uh, a theology of trouble or a theology of problems. Uh, not just in Romans 12, but I think on your outlines I also put on there for you uh, Luke chapter 6. Because Paul is really just repeating uh, or re-emphasizing Jesus' teaching uh, on how to respond when we have been wronged, which is what Romans 12, starting in verse 14, is really all about. It says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another within the body of Christ. Do not be haughty in mind, but be willing to associate with the lowly brethren or associate or brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now he switches. He's thinking more about how a believer should respond to an unbeliever. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, then give him a drink. When you do this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, we want to make sure we take note of the context. Uh, you know that's a big thing. Uh, it's very tempting and it's very bad hermeneutic or application to read a verse and just pull it out. Uh, to fully understand what God's intent is for any passage of scripture, we have to understand the neighborhood in which it was placed. We don't ever want to pull a verse out of its neighborhood. Because then it's just uncomfortable. It's not at home. So we already saw last week, what's the very first word in Romans 12, verse 1? Therefore. And so when we see therefore, we ask what? What is it therefore? 
Okay. Some of you are like, okay, I got it. But that is true. So he's saying, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, based on everything I've written to you in Romans chapters 1 through 11. He's saying, based on all the glorious, wonderful things God has done for you in Christ, by forgiving you of your sins, justifying you before God, and sanctifying, making you holy in your lives before God, therefore you should offer your lives to God as a living sacrifice. My motivation for living for Him is that He died for me. That is what Paul is saying. And now in chapters 12 through 16, he's going to tell us how does this all shake down? How does this work day to day? How does this happen when I go off to work, when I go off to school, when I go home and I enter into relationships? Or when I'm living as a member of the body of Christ in a local church and things come up? Problems, issues, struggles. How am I supposed to live? That's Romans 12 through 16. So we want to keep it in the neighborhood. Now, in Luke 6, we don't need to go there, but that's where Jesus was teaching about what is required to live in his kingdom. And he says one of the requirements to live in his kingdom is that we don't respond or retaliate when we have been wronged. Jesus says that's not allowed. And you know what's interesting about that context of Luke 6 Luke 6 begins with Jesus going up onto a mountain all by himself and praying all night. Then he comes down and he looks at all of his disciples. And by the way, he had hundreds of disciples, the Bible tells us. But at this time, he then, based on prayer, selects 12 to be his closest disciples. Then, in Luke 6, what do we see? People coming from everywhere. To be healed was from sicknesses, from diseases. The scriptures in Luke 6 say that Jesus healed them all. People were coming in massive numbers. Showing us what? That Jesus cares about our problems. Then he goes into, in the same context, and says, Do not return evil with evil. But he makes sure first that we understand Though as hard as this teaching is, as hard as this kingdom rule may be, know that I love you and I care about your problems. He's not saying, suck it up. (laughs) You know, we're tempted to do that, right? Oh, I'm having this problem or this. Well, really what you need to do is read this verse and suck it up and have faith. But Jesus is trying to uh, inform us. That I'm telling you, this is how you are to respond when you are wronged. But know that I'm sympathetic to your problems. You know, Hebrews tells us that, right? That we have a sympathetic high priest who understands all the things that tempt us. Because what happens is sometimes we interpret our problems as God not being aware or as God not loving. So I think Jesus there in Luke 6 wants to make it very clear that he does care about our problems. Now we saw in Romans 12, those opening verses 1 and 2, especially verse 2. Can you read verse 2 with me out loud of Romans 12, just to keep your juices flowing? I don't want to lose anybody. Uh, Thank you, Linda. I appreciate that. So, all right. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Then he goes, and I love Romans 12.3. Romans 12.3 is perfect for our therapeutic, self-esteem obsessed culture. Because Paul says in verse 3, he says, he teaches us, what does it mean to have the right self-identity? He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of yourself than you should think. But think of yourself with sound judgment as God has given to each a measure of faith. So Paul says, don't you dare have high self-esteem and don't you dare have low self-esteem. You place your identity in Christ and you're content and you rejoice over what God has given you or who God has made you. It's really about being content with who we are in Christ. Then in the next verses he goes through talking about how we interact, how we use our spiritual gifts within the body of Christ to exalt Christ and to strengthen one another. And then he comes to verse 9, which is the center of this text. Let love be without hypocrisy. Everything in this chapter is centered on that love. Loving God and loving other people. You get to verses 14 through 21. As difficult as it may sound, the motivation is love for God and love for other people. Even love for those who are wronging us. That's why we say it's supernatural living, right? Is it natural to love someone who is harming us or doing us wrong? Yes or no? Okay. But are we commanded to love even our enemies? Yes. So do you think that would be supernatural? Yeah. Doing something that within my own natural self, I I just am not capable of. But with God's power and God's word, I can do that. That's why I call it supernatural living. So love is the center. Love for Christ, love for God, love for others is the reason that we overcome evil with good. Now, because I can read minds, I know what you're thinking. Okay, I'm right in there. I'm in your head. All right. You're thinking, I tried that and it doesn't work. I tried that already. It doesn't work. I'm glad you're thinking that because I'm going to help you to work through that thought. Now, go to Jeremiah chapter 9. Because here's what we want to have as Christians. We want to make sure that we have a God-centered approach to the relevance of Scripture. Relevancy, meaning usefulness. Because even a lot of Christians don't see the Bible as relevant to their problems. They think, you know, those are good words, you know, that's good teaching, but that really is not in tune with what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, and what's happening. But if we have a God-centered approach to how relevant the scriptures are, there are two main Post, I guess we would say we would want to hammer down to the ground. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his own wisdom 
And let not the mighty man boast of his own strength. And do not let the rich man boast about his own riches. But if anyone is going to boast, let him boast about this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. And then what does he say? For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God says, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how rich you are. What I care about is that, number one, you know me. And number two, that you will conform yourself to my law or my word or my perspective. See, I think we get confused sometimes. We start thinking that being happy is the essence of what it means to even be alive or to exist or to be a Christian. When the Bible teaches that really happiness, first of all, happiness and joy are two different things. We get those things confused. Happiness depends pretty much on my circumstances. Joy depends upon my attitude and my relationship with God. We'll see more about that in a minute. Because some of you are looking at me like, yeah, I'm not buying what you're selling. So, once again, I know you're thinking that, so we're going to look at that in a few minutes. But happiness and maturity are common results, circle, highlight, underline, of life with God. But happiness and maturity are not the essence of what it means to be a God follower. We have blessings, yes, and we have been released from the, the, the condemnation of sin and even the power of sin. But Jesus promised us what? That we would also have troubles. You don't ever see that scripture on a t-shirt at the Christian bookstore. In this world you will have trouble. Ooh, that's my life verse. We, we don't tend to focus on the, the things that we don't like to hear, right? But true disciples of Jesus don't seek the life of ease that pagans chase after. You guys, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a true Christ follower, your ultimate chase, have you been watching the Olympics? That 19-year-old American girl, her first Olympics, she got second in the 100-meter dash. Those people are fast. But what are we chasing? We have to make sure that we're not chasing after comfort, after ease, after wisdom, after strength, after beauty, after money. We should be chasing after those things. We should be chasing after knowing God and conforming to the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, you see where we're going a little bit with developing a theology of problems. As far as, how do we answer when someone says, I tried that and it doesn't work? And by the way, I'm not basing that on anything that anyone specifically in here has said to me. I'm just saying this is something that I hear quite a bit. Uh, Oh, I've tried that and it doesn't work. Well, here's some things we want to think about if someone says that. What do you mean by the word work when you say it doesn't work? Well, first of all, we saw in Luke 6 and in Romans 12 that these are kingdom rules. That to be a Christ follower, obedience is not optional, is it? 
It's not optional depending on how difficult our circumstances are. Jesus has told us how we should live. And he has also told us that he loves us, he cares about us. And that blessings come as the byproduct of obedience. You see, sometimes, do you know that Satan tempted Christ? You know the essence of the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4? You know what the essence of that is? Here, Jesus, take the shortcut. You don't have to go through all this bad stuff to get all these good things that God has promised you. Does that temptation sound familiar? Does that temptation sound familiar for your own life? We want the blessings many times of belonging to Christ. But we don't want to go through the trials and the problems that often are the means of receiving those blessings. Which, if you turn the coin over, folks, we often miss out on tremendous blessings by not being obedient to the Lord during times of trouble. There are certain rich, deep, intimate, powerful blessings of being a follower of Christ that can only come to me if I'm willing to walk through the path of trouble with Him. Not without Him, but with Him. We often want to take the shortcut. It's the same temptation. Satan was appealing to Christ's humanity. We're human, right? That's very tempting. Nobody wants to go through trouble. Nobody wants to be wronged. Nobody wants to be hurt. That's not what we're saying. We're not minimizing that. We're just looking at what the Lord has said. Definitions. I I sometimes ask people, well, when you say you've tried that, well, how long did you try it? And what do you mean by work? Sometimes we mean, well, I didn't get the desired results that I wanted. Uh, I tried to do what the scripture said, but it didn't make my problem go away. You see, that's what we often realize, isn't it? That we become desperate to make a problem go away when it comes up. Which is only natural, right? In our humanity. You know, nobody gets hit in the face and says, Oh, praise the Lord, I'm learning a lot. Hit me again. I mean, that's not what we're saying, right? It's only natural. But we have to remember that being a Christian means in this world we will have trouble. But we're going to see it means even more than that. It means much more. We're not talking about just enduring it like some punching bag. It's much more than that. But what about expectations? Sometimes what we're expecting doesn't come. And what's unmasked is that perhaps we've had the wrong expectations. That maybe our heart has been hoping for the wrong thing. That we're, we don't have God's perspective. Anyone know what 2 Corinthians 5.9 says? It may be an obscure verse to you, but it's a major verse to me. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether alive or with the Lord, to be pleasing to Him. We make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. Sometimes our expectations are wrong. But even in times of trouble, even when I'm being wronged or victimized, my goal as God's child is to be pleasing to him in my response. In my response. Okay. Do you ever see the sound of mu- Not the sound of music. I can't stand that movie. Why would I think of that? Uh, the music. Sorry. Oof. She goes, oh, there's a sound of music sing-along at the Hollywood Bowl. I said, oh, tell me how it goes. <laughs> oh. 
Wow. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be punished. I'll probably have to share a floor with Julie Andrews. Listen to her sing. Music Man. My kids loved that movie, Music Man, with Shirley Jones and is it Robert Preston? I love that song, Oh, We Got Trouble. Oh, We Got Trouble, right here in River City. Anyway, okay. I like that song. I'm kind of giving you the conclusion ahead of time so that you can think through your goals as we go through the scriptures. I kind of like to do that sometimes. Give the ending and then work backwards. This is a biblical approach to pleasing God in times of trouble. And we'll see, unless you think, oh boy, that's really up there. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul demonstrated every single one of these things. So that, I mean, God gives us a real life example of someone who exhibited this for us to show us exactly what he means. So we recognize that God is in our problems. He hasn't left us when a problem comes up. We have to remember that God is up to something when we're facing a trial or a temptation or we're being wronged or there's a problem. That God is up to something. We have to start thinking that way. Because remember, what is God's goal in your life? The scriptures are very clear. Romans 8.28 is God's goal for every Christian. That we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God wants us to be like Jesus. That is what he is always up to. We have to believe Beyond that, Romans 8.28, not just that God is up to something, but that he is always up to something good. Always up to something good. Now, we may define the word good differently than God does. All things work together for... Oh, I heard one person go, good... Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, you guys. <laughs> Sounds like an Eeyore convention. God, okay. What's the qualifier on that statement in Romans 8.28? All things work together for good for, for those who love God and then called according to his purpose. It's frightening. God doesn't make that promise to those who do not belong to him in Christ. That promise is only for those who belong to him, who've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. That he will work out every situation for your good, no matter how awful it may seem. Then we have to look to see where God is working and how he is working in this situation. And then we have to make a commitment to get involved with what God is doing. Sometimes we we know God's at work, but sometimes we only interpret God at work when so-called good things are happening. But in Romans 12, 13 through 21, I'm being wronged by an unbeliever who hates God, therefore hates me. And God says, Don't retaliate. Leave that to me. Know that I'm at work here. And know that I'm at work on your behalf for your good. And then when he says, do good to those who are doing evil, that's God saying, join me in what I'm trying to do here. 
And then we need to always expect good results from God. We have to always expect good results. You know what Joseph said, right? When he finally met his brothers after they had sold him into slavery and he had endured prison and false accusations. They were terrified that he was going to retaliate and take revenge. Great, great verse in the Bible. Genesis chapter 50. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, for the deliverance of many people. You guys need to, not now, because I want you to listen to me, but sometime, go to Genesis 50 and just read that. That's, Joseph had the same perspective of trouble as Paul had, as Jesus had. It's not just pie-in-the-sky theology. That's how these men lived their lives. Did the Apostle Paul have problems? He often didn't have food. He didn't have shelter. He was beaten. He was even left for dead two times. They thought they had beaten him so senseless that they walked off because they thought he was dead. And we read, oh, he got up and dusted himself off and walked off. I don't think that's how it ha- I don't think he just popped up and, you know... He probably got up, staggered, bloody, half unconscious. Plus he had all the pressures and he had divisions and fighting in the church. He had people attacking his leadership. And this is Paul writing and saying this is what we should do when we're being wronged. I wish we had time to read all these passages, but we don't. Maybe we can read a little bit of each one. We won't read the whole thing. Go to Acts 16. I want us to have a concrete example of someone who responded this way. As we read through this, think about what trouble is Paul having in this passage and what good came out of it. Acts chapter 16, verse 19. When this uh, possessed girl or slave girl, when her masters, in verse 19, saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. They brought out the chief magistrates and said, these guys are throwing the city into confusion and they're proclaiming customs that are unlawful for us. Verse 22, the crowd rose up against them. They tore their robes off and they began to beat them with rods. They struck them with many blows. They threw them into prison and commanding the jailer to keep them secure. He not only threw them into prison, verse 24, but into the inner prison, fastening their legs in chains. Is that some trouble? That's some trouble. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were moaning and groaning and crying and terrified. And is that what it says? What does it say? They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And then what else was happening at the end of verse 25? Don't miss that. What were the other prisoners doing? That gives me goosebumps. They were having a testimony to unbelievers while they were in prison. They had just been beaten senseless with rods and they were praying to God and they were singing. Not because it didn't hurt, not because they're insane, not because they're cuckoo. I think they understood, they had a providential view of what it means as a Christian to be wronged. 
I think they understood, part of what they understood is it was bigger than just themselves. I think they understood that often chains lead to opportunities that couldn't come any other way. There's really some powerful stuff here, if we have the eyes to see. So the guard, the head guard comes in, you know, the earthquake comes, the door flies open, the guard comes in, he's going to kill himself, uh, because this is not going well. Uh, Verse 30, the head jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? (sighs) Wow. They, I think we could be sympathetic, couldn't we, if they had become totally consumed with what was happening to them. I think we could be sympathetic to that, but they weren't. Even in the midst of a horrible situation, they were being careful to worship and to praise God, to be a testimony and a witness. And what is the result? Someone gets saved. Interesting. And they spoke, verse 32, and they spoke, well, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then I think his whole household got saved. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together. With all who were in the house. So they began preaching and witnessing. And they took him that very hour of the night. They got, the jailer did and he washed up their wounds. And then he was baptized. And then his household, uh, the, all the other adults in his home were baptized. Who made a profession of faith. Because he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So there has to be a profession of faith and then baptism. And he brought them into the, his house and set food before them. And what did the jailer now do? Rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Wow. What was the trouble he was facing? How did he respond? What was the good that came out of it? So he's in jail there in Philippi. Uh, Go to Acts chapter 28. We'll just do what we can get done today. I always prepare way too much. Acts 28, look at verse 17. So now Paul's in Rome. He's under house arrest. Uh, So he goes to Rome, verse uh, 17. He calls uh, together those who were the leading men of the Jews in Rome. And they came together and he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs, I was delivered as a prisoner to Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. They examined me. They were willing to release me because there were no grounds for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected to my being released, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I'm wearing this chain. Read that again. I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you or any of the brethren have come and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are concerning this sect of Christianity. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging. They had put him under house arrest. In large numbers they came while he was under house arrest. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. 
both from the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Don't ever get discouraged if you share the gospel and someone doesn't believe. Jesus shared the gospel and people didn't believe. Paul shared the gospel, people didn't believe. But rejoice with the angels in heaven because some were being persuaded. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke, and then he quotes some things from Isaiah. Verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And then verse 30, How long did he remain under house arrest? Two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Once again, what was his problem? What was the good that came out of it? It's quite amazing. Philippians 2. Go to Philippians 2. Verse 12. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians while he was in house arrest in Rome. But what is the key word in the letter to the Philippians? It appears 20 times. Joy. Or the word rejoice is a form of the word joy. The theme of Philippians is joy, and yet it was a letter written from prison. That should... That speaks volumes, doesn't it, on its own. I'm trying to see if I have the right, I hope I have the right passage. If not, we're going to find it because I don't want to miss it. I think it's chapter 1, sorry, Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 12. It says, now I want you to know, brethren... That my circumstances have turned out for what? The greater progress of the gospel. He says, hey folks, yeah, I'm under arrest. Yeah, things are really hard. But look, it has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, which is 16,000 soldiers, and everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What's the problem? He's in prison. What's the good that comes out? He has an audience of tens of thousands, and no doubt, salvations. Opportunities that he would not have had without the trouble, without the problem. Does it mean it was easy? No, that's not what we're saying. So Paul's view of trouble. He believed that God was there with him in his trouble. He says, I am in chains for the cause of Christ. He had a providential view of his trouble. He was right where Christ wanted him to be, as difficult as it was. But you see, 
he was allowing himself to be conformed to God's perspective of what was going on in his life. He didn't say, oh, I've been arrested, I've been beaten, where is God? He actually said, I've been arrested, I've been beaten, you know, I'm hungry, I'm cold. But look at what advances have been made for the cause of Christ. That wouldn't have been made any other way. He recognized that God was up to something. He knew that his increased troubles meant increased opportunities. And here's something really important. His focus was not on what others were up to, but his focus was on what God was up to. It's so tempting, isn't it? When we're in a difficult situation like Paul or like Romans 12 where we're being wronged, to zero in and focus our complete attention on what the other person is doing to me rather than what Christ can do through me. It's tough. Of course Paul was suffering. Of course he was sacrificing even his physical body. But he had a providential view that God was up to something and up to something good. Ooh, that's a lot on there. I get greedy. See how much I can squeeze into a slide. You know, and the font gets smaller and smaller. It's like, one, one more word, one more word. Paul realized that God was up to something good. That's why he says in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. And this is something that we have to affirm in our thinking. And we have to be patient. It's not something that comes naturally. Right? We have to be patient because we know that the purposes of God often take time to work themselves out. We say, okay, God's up to something. Okay, God, I'm on a timeline here. I have a schedule. If you could wrap up what you're doing by 12.05, that would be perfect. But we have to be patient because God, when he's at work, when he's up to something, it often takes longer than what we realize to work it out. What are some of the benefits? Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. I love these two verses. David says, it was good for me to be afflicted. Because before you afflicted me, O Lord, I went astray. But now I know your word. David said, there are some things that I've learned about you. Remember Jeremiah 9? One of the two major things when we deal with troubles is to know God. And the psalmist, David says, I know you better now, God, because of what I have gone through. I know you in deeper ways that I would not have been able to know you if I had not gone through this. I think I've shared this with you before, but we had a friend, Larry Lawler, and his wife, Cheryl, in Warsaw, Indiana. Uh, he had cancer, uh, and he was near death. It was awful. Horrible struggle. Not only that, they, I'm, I'm laughing because it's like a cynical, unbelievable laugh, but... Uh, during that time, too, a tornado came through and damaged their home. Uh, so they just had a lot to deal with. And I remember uh, we were at a picnic and we were walking and I was talking with him. Uh, and I said, how, because his testimony was so vibrant. I said, how, how have you endured this with such a, 
a positive outlook. Uh, and he said, I'm actually thankful for what I've gone through because I know the Lord in ways now that I never would have if I hadn't gone through these things. It, oh, yeah. And during that time as well, Cheryl became pregnant with twins and the twins were conjoined in the womb. And they had to have surgery in the womb to separate them, right? It was after, right at birth. So a lot on their plate, a lot of things. But he said, I'm glad I've gone through these things because I know the Lord in ways I never would have. And I thought, to my, I didn't say it out loud, but in my head I was like, say, what? James 1.3, of course, says what? That the testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance is a tremendous benefit of facing troubles. What do we mean by endurance? Not the self-help endurance. We're talking about perseverance and trusting in the Lord. Uh, in deepening our faith. Uh, in strengthening the anchor of holding on to Christ. That's endurance. That's perseverance. Paul got involved with what God was doing. And you say, well, how can I get involved with what God's doing in my situation? Well, we begin by identifying your chain, you know, Paul was in chains, and see what's on the other end of it. In other words, what's the ordeal that you're dealing with right now, especially in the context of a Romans 12:14? Are you being wronged? Are you being victimized? Are you being hurt? So that's where you begin. That's the situation. So we look at that situation. And then we don't overlook the blessings in the trouble by resisting God's work in that trouble. It's very tempting to resist what God wants to do in my trouble because I just want the trouble to go away. Which is understandable, but it's not God's goal. It's not God's goal. See your problem as a chain and see it as a link to God's opportunity. Don't see trouble just as simply trouble. And I think this is a very good thing to do. Ask yourself, what might God be doing here? What might God be doing here? What might he be trying to teach me in my own heart? What might he be trying to do in my testimony to other people that are involved in this? What might God be up to? What might God be trying to do in the life of the person who is wronging me? How might God be wanting to use me? It's really good to stop and to step back and to think about that question. Before the tidal wave of anxiety and concern rushes over us. Here's some good results. Remember, expect good results. Here's four. I think I have this on your outline, right? These are just four that are found in the text of Philippians that we've looked at. Your attitude will be affected. If you choose to see where God is working in your problem and to join him in what he's trying to do rather than resist him. You know that Philippians 1 says that there was, this was a result of the trial. A result of the problem was what? Boldness, gladness, and eager expectation of what God was going to do. Another good result 
when we go through problems is that Christ will be exalted. Christ will be exalted. That's what Paul said in verse 20. He said, my eager expectation is that I will not be put to shame by the way I respond and that Christ will be exalted. Now, folks, some of us have to repent because when problems come, what it does, and I think this is both a blessing and a need of concern or a reason for concern, is when a problem comes, it often un- it unveils my heart and reveals to me that seeing Christ exalted really is not the heartbeat of my life. As a Christian... And so we must stop and we must repent and ask God's forgiveness for that. And then we take aim to be pleasing to him. But Paul said, I don't want to be ashamed about how I respond in this situation. And I want Christ to be exalted. Verse 14 of Philippians 1. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment now have far more courage to speak the word of God with boldness and without fear. Other believers can be encouraged by your response to your problems. That's a wonderful benefit. Because it helps us to face trouble with the attitude or the perspective of concerns that are larger than ourselves. That helps. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, Overcome evil with good. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Having this kind of focus doesn't ignore or dismiss our suffering and the struggle, but it actually lightens the burden and it helps us to join God where he is working when we understand that even the trouble that I'm facing concerns something and other people much larger than just myself. What did Paul say elsewhere in Corinthians? I now can comfort others with the comfort that God comforted me with. It's turning it around. Then a fourth and final thing. This isn't a complete list. It's just what I could come up with. But the good news will always advance when I respond the way God wants me to to my problems. People will watch how you work through a problem. And you could think of it this way, that your response, especially when you're being wronged, will give the gospel a hearing. Does that make sense? You're demonstrating the word of God in action by how you respond or work through a problem. And your concern will be directed away from yourself. And notice in this Philippians context, we don't get any details of Paul's suffering. None of the details of specifically. I think that's why it's maybe easy to gloss over it, that it wasn't any big deal. I don't think so. I think he was so zeroed in on seeing Christ exalted and being a testimony and a witness to unbelievers who were around him and being an encouragement to the saints that he wasn't focused on the specifics of his suffering. Now, we know he had needs. He even asked for others to bring him clothing and things to take care of his needs. But his needs weren't driving him. They weren't dominating him. They weren't overwhelming him. He had an understanding that there were larger things at stake 
even in his imprisonment. My problems, because I'm in the body of Christ, and because I have a family, and because I'm an employee or a student or, you know, whatever, the way I respond to the problems of life is always a testimony. It's always a testimony. We'll finish with this. Everything today has just been an introduction to Romans twelve fourteen. Too bad it's not time change today. We could go an extra hour. but This is a great way to apply any passage of Scripture. We're going to end with this today. So, this week you read Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. And you go to Luke 6, and you pick up where Jesus is talking about turning the other cheek. And these are the four questions. Actually, these are four basic questions that all people always ask. Whether we realize it or not, part of being human is asking these four questions. But it's a good way to look at a text of Scripture and then, according to what the Scriptures say, answer these four questions. And I just have the highlighted words on your outline. Duty, character, goals, and discernment. Duty, Character, goals, and discernment. So I read Romans 12, 14 through 21, and I ask myself, what should I do? What is my duty according to this passage? What is God asking me to do? And I write down everything. Okay, so when I am cursed, I return it with a blessing. See, what am I being asked to do? The second question we always ask, and we should ask of any passage of Scripture is who should I be? In other words, in order to do right, what kind of person do I need to become? What kind of godly character traits is Christ calling me to in this passage? Remember in Romans 12, he says, don't be haughty, but be willing to associate with even the lowly. What, what character trait does that call for? Humility. Humility. So in Romans 12, 14 through 21, one of the character traits he's calling me to is humility. I'm, I'm helping you with your homework. Yeah. Service is another thing. Actually serving people. Give them something to drink. Give them something to eat. Thirdly, in the area of goals, every passage answers this question. To what cause should I devote my energy in other words, I read this passage and I think, what kind of plan should I have? Or this should be very specific. How can I return evil for good in this situation? What can I do for this person? How can I, what can I say to this person? We're going to look at this next week, Lord willing. But what's the first command that we're given in this context in verse 14? Bless those keep you blessed and do not curse. He opens with a command about the way I talk. Why would he do that? Well, because when I'm wrong, what's the very first temptation? Right out of the mouth. So the very first thing I need to get a grip on when I'm wronged is how do I respond with my words to the person who is wronging me? It's very interesting. 
So I should devote my energy to learning how to speak the proper words that glorify God and benefit the person who is wronging me. I know some of you are laughing. That's me too. That's the first temptation when we're wronged. Then lastly, closing with this. How can I discern truth from error? In other words, how can I show discernment? In other words, this is really all about how can I see God's perspective of my problem based on the scriptures rather than giving into the flesh and seeking my own resolution to this problem. One of the things in our passage, in your homework, is never take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. I have to be very discerning to see the situation from God's perspective and not try to retaliate, you know, on my own. My goal this morning was just to help you, to encourage you. Because I know that there are all kinds of different ways, right? This passage is pretty much specifically toward the end talking about an unbeliever who's persecuting a believer simply because he is a Christian. So it's a God-hater just taking it out on a Christian. But the principles carry over. There are a lot of ways that we are wronged, right? Unfortunately, we often have frenemies. Uh, I like that word, right? Those who are in our lives, who love us, or those who love the Lord, and yet there's still a lot of mistreatment. But we have to remember there's more at stake than just what's happening to me, right? We want to make sure Christ is exalted. We want to make sure we're having that heavenly perspective as we work through the things that God has put on our plate. Let's stand together. Let's have a word of prayer. Go ahead and bow your heads. I can see by the looks on some of your faces you uh, bow your heads, please. Uh, by the looks on some of your faces that you're wrestling with some things. You're struggling with some things. There's some situations in your lives and you're not responding in a way that brings glory to Christ. Uh, that's taking advantage of the opportunity. We don't really see our struggles that way, do we? Sometimes. That's you. Just take a moment just to confess that to the Lord. Uh, and just pray that God would humble our hearts to get on board with his agenda. Uh, because, you know what, we have to have him give us the will and the desire to do that even. Sometimes it's really... We battle ourselves as well as battling him. So, Father, we pray that you would give us a biblical perspective of the things that you allow into our lives. Uh, that you are at work in our lives and, and you are at work in our problems. Uh, and, Father, it's very tempting when we're wronged to lash out, to retaliate, uh, to go into a nosedive of self-pity and over-self-concern. But, Father... Help us to hit the brakes. I pray that you would break our hearts to the point that we really desire to be pleasing to you. That we understand that there's so much more at stake in our own problems than what we may realize. 
that you want to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ in order to be a witness and to be a testimony. And you want to bless us, but there are certain blessings we can only experience if we obey, especially in difficult situations. So, Father, we just pray you would make your desires our desires, that your will would become our will. And that you would melt our hearts, that you would soften our hearts. Maybe you even have to break our hearts to get us to that point. So, Father, I pray this coming week as we read over Luke 6 and Romans 12, that we would think very carefully about what you're asking us. What is our duty? What should our character be? What should our goals be? And how can we be discerning about your perspective of things? So, Father, for all the good results that you bring, we give you the glory and the honor. And we give Christ and your spirit the glory and the honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming today, folks. I saw a couple visitors. Make sure you greet them before they uh, get out the door. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week.